Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Nathaniel Popkin. He's a writer, editor, historian, journalist, and the author of numerous books. His most recent book, Philadelphia, Finding the Hidden City, is a collaborative project with Joseph E.B. Elliott and Peter Woodall. Much of the real Philadelphia is concealed behind facades. Philadelphia, Finding the Hidden City, artfully reveals its urban secrets. Rather than a nostalgic elegy to loss and urban decline, the book exposes the city's vivid layers and living ruins. The authors connect Philadelphia's idiosyncratic history, culture, and people to develop an alternative theory of American urbanism and place the city in American urban history. It's a great book, and Nathaniel and I had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Nathaniel Popkin. Nathaniel, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. So this is audio format, of course, so people can't see the room we're in, but we are in the Athenian, right? Athenaeum. Athenaeum. Uh, this is a. I didn't. I live in Philadelphia, like you, and I never knew this existed. <laughs> well, the, you know, gets the theme of of the hidden city. I guess uh, the Athenaeum is is like was one of dozens and dozens and dozens of private societies. Philadelphia had more of them than Boston and New York combined. And uh, this was a literary society uh, where you could uh, be a subscriber. You could come in and read any book you want, any newspaper you want, uh, have a drink with your friends in the afternoon. Uh, so it was founded in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, this building was built in 1840, and it continues to serve its members as a private lending library and uh, an architectural archive. So I didn't see a bar here. Do they still have drinks in the afternoon? Uh, unfortunately, they don't. <laughs> Coffee has been added upstairs to the library, but uh, but those days, I guess, are over. And you say there's lots of this these private societies sort of in the history of the city. Why why so many in Philadelphia? Is it unique among major American cities in that regard? It's absolutely unique, and I think. We wouldn't be wrong to say it goes back to Benjamin Franklin. So when the, the original people, his peers and colleagues who came to Philadelphia uh, in the beginning of the 18th century, they came here and the mother country was far away. So they had every right and need to create their own society. And particularly in Philadelphia, where there was freedom of religion, freedom of association. It was not repressive like Massachusetts. Uh, in Philadelphia, they decided to create their own institutions. And Benjamin Franklin was integral to doing that. So he created the first, which was called the Junto, so which means together, and people came together to help each other out in business and in science, in education, in publishing, in, in whatever they needed, they formed societies to um, to solve problems, to extend learning, to establish um, uh, knowledge, which, you know, you're starting in a tabula rasa, more or less, that's what you do. So, and that's really what they did here. And that imprint, I believe, almost as much as any other kind of imprint from the earlier 
early days of the city and this country uh, was to do that, was to create private membership societies that typified the way you went about living in this city. So you, you were part of something, and that goes into the 19th century where, and all the way into the 20th century where Philadelphia is not known as, as for example, it's not known as a great restaurant city in the early 20th century, and yet some of the best food is made in Philadelphia by its legendary African-American caterers who serve so many of these private societies. Uh, and so the, the good times, the community, the great culture is happening in, in the dozens of private societies. And there were more in Philadelphia than in Boston and New York combined. Is there, you know, I've read some of the history like after World War II, and that's another season in American life where people were institution builders and civically minded and people investing in for different reasons in the post-war period. But it seems like we're pretty far from that today like as far as people uh, trusting institutions, wanting to build them and, and having a sense of civic cohesiveness. You know, is, is, is that fair to say? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. In some, in some sense, what happened um, after the Depression, which proved that private societies and private interests were not capable of dealing with hemorrhage, an economic hemorrhage, and a collapse. And that caused the, the New Deal to happen and, and, and government to take over a lot of those tasks because private interests were not willing and were not able to handle the need of society. And what happened, uh, I think, in cities is that it from that point on, large institutional and governmental in, uh, forces sort of took over some of those jobs that, say, religious organizations and private organizations did in terms of moral reform and welfare and things like that. And all of us, and, and, and now you have government doing all of these things, and the institutions are building, and those institutions are gaining confidence, and they're now looking scientifically at problems, and they're thinking that they can solve them. Some of that had happened earlier in earlier stages of the country in the beginning of the 20th century, but now you have a real hope to solve social problems, socioeconomic, racial, um, and, and other kinds of societal problems from, from government. And you got, we, we ended up with the culture of the expert. Culture of the expert really took it hard during the civil rights era and the Vietnam War era. And no longer are we able to trust the expert. And I th we're certainly living in, in that situation right now. Uh, we're, you know, the media landscape is so polarized and fragmented. We're not reading the same news, apparently. Or some of us are reading more or less objectively collective news, and other people are uh, reading crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's others that, of us are reading from the Russians. <laughs> right, and, and not caring. Uh, and so, so there is a fragmentation. On the other hand, I do think that the notion of people coming together to solve problems, to invent new ways of living, to do art, to think about civic problems, um, to share literature and things like that is absolutely alive. And, and part of the sort of collapse of the institutional economy, say, for example, in the media landscape with newspapers, utterly collapsing. For journalists, that means... Whew, what you expected to have in your career is completely blown up, blown away, and so you have to sort of figure out how to do it. And in fact, the Hidden City Daily, which I'm a co-founder of, along with Peter Wood, all the, the co-author of, of this book, Philadelphia, Finding the Hidden City, uh, 
you know, we're, we're one of those sort of, okay, uh, in the wake of the media collapse, uh, what do people do to report news? How do you reinvent uh, the journalism landscape? I'd much rather have newsrooms of three, four, five, six hundred people than a whole bunch of little websites because there's they're not equal. They're not even close to equal. But in this new fragmented landscape, there's a whole lot of... Um, <laughs> That's a great clock. It is a great clock. Uh, th- there's a whole lot of opportunity. Yeah, and, and so this is fair to say the hidden city, the hidden city movement. <laughs> it's kind of it, it's about what uh, about eight years old now. Two thousand nine was when the yeah, that's right. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Thaddeus Squire and some of his uh, friends and colleagues um, came up with the idea of having a, a festival called the Hidden City Festival in Philadelphia, and. They identified 10 locations around the city uh, that were either abandoned or underused and hidden from the main flow of life. Um, Spaces that you wouldn't normally be able to access in neighborhoods that you might not think to go into and depending on where you lived and to, to sort of turn the turn it a little bit, he installed performance and um, visual art from uh, made by artists all over the world into those 10 spaces and created a six-week festival so that you could get out of your neighborhood, go into someone else's, go into a space you'd never seen, see it reinvented and reanimated by an artist. And, and you begin to start thinking then a little bit differently about the city that you live in. And you begin to see that it's filled with possibility. You begin to see things you didn't even notice before. And that's the seed of of the hidden city movement, as you said. And then a couple of years after the festival, uh, Peter Woodall and I founded the Hidden City Daily, which was meant to take the conceit of the festival, exploration and discovery, uh, revelation of, of the things you didn't know about before, uh, insight and analytics about the way the city is changing and turn it into a journalism platform called the Hidden City Daily. We've been publishing since uh, September of 2011. And... Um, with the idea that we are we're telling stories that help us to understand the city of today as it is in tension always with the city of the past and the city of the future. Do you think is this something you write a lot about ruins and and what ruins sort of tell us about our history? You know, it strikes me in pre-modern times most people are not quite as mobile and they don't work one place, worship in another, recreate in another. So if there is a ruin, like the Colosseum, everybody knows, but you could be around all these ruins, like these things that were thriving centers and pieces of architecture, you know, where people did important things and shaped the cultural landscape. And you could go by them all the time and never even know they're there. Yeah, one of the things, um, so in, in Finding the Hidden City, we, we're hoping that the reader will come to interpret and read the city a little bit differently than maybe he or she does today. And so we look at the city as a collection of layers, and we help you sort of understand the way those layers accrete over time. And we think this is a... By the way, that's the great... I had to, I had to look the word up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you say that Philly's an accretive city, and you contrast it to... Detroit or Boston or Charleston. All these so yeah, yeah. Say yes. more about that. Yeah. So let me get into that and then we'll talk about ruins. So one thing we do with this book is we try to 
typologized Philadelphia within the landscape of American cities. And in that sense, we say it's an accretive place, that it's, it's, a, it's a city built up of layers. And essentially, we posit that in contrast to New York uh, or Los Angeles, places or Chicago, places that have changed with through more dramatic and more extraordinary means. So um, an earthquake, uh, a, a, a a major intervention by a capitalist um, or a wild thinker who has a particular dream and is able to, you know, create ca- catastrophic change within the, the, the urban landscape. Rem Koolhaas wrote a book called Delirious New York in which he posited that's the way cities change. And it was, it was a delirious and also kind of delicious idea that we can celebrate those sort of... Um, visionary people, usually men, who uh, instill their visions into the urban landscape in monumental ways. When we look at Philadelphia, although that's happened plenty of times here as well, we look at Philadelphia, we see a city that has developed much differently, though. Really, as each generation comes into the city, it inherits the city that was created by the people who were before them, and they do what they can with it. You know, they, they inhabit it, they reassess it, they take it for their own and adapt to it and then adapt the city to their own needs. And that's how layers develop. And so in that sense, Philadelphia is a, a slower changing, accretive city. It has the same population today as it did a hundred years ago. And of course, that's not a, a true flat line because there was an, there was a growth and then there was an enormous collapse. But if you look at Los Angeles or New York, those cities have experienced enormous population growth in in that same period, whereas Philadelphia's is flat. And the flatness tells us something about slow change, incremental change, and uh, a kind of stable place, which is unusual in American urban history. Now, what happens is that you end up, as a person living in the city, you end up living in someone else's city built by them for their reasons and maybe for economic reasons that have nothing to do with the economy of today. Department store, for example. Uh, Department stores, I would be very surprised to see if most, many bricks and mortar department stores are around in 15 years. Yeah, out in Bucks County, the the Chamonix or the Oxford Valley Mall, you know, one of the big box stores has just been empty for so long. And and you look at this mall with a big open ended big buy and you're just like wow it's like it's it's an eyesore it's strange it, 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 it's weird it's very strange and it's kind of ruins isn't it so the, the way we think about the city is a city of living ruins um, ruins have always had this um notion that they provide the raw material for the next civilization and in places like Rome and Athens, actually the actual stones from those ancient civilizations were used to build the modern cities of the 19th century, um, or they were used, or gardens grew out of them, or, or, you know, they became living places. And for us in Philadelphia, we inherit the ruins of economic systems, of religious systems, cultural systems, uh, ethnic systems, and, and means of life that others held and you know, we take a Lutheran church built by German immigrants and turn it into a Buddhist temple. That's one obvious way of, of thinking about the way that the city is a place of living ruins. And um, for me and for us in thinking, thinking about the city as a place in the present, 
We set out to write this book. We certainly, and the same with our website, The Hidden City Daily, we didn't want to distance ourselves from the notion of the city. We didn't want to put it in amber. We didn't want to think of it as a burnished place. And you mentioned Boston and Charleston, which are places that have taken a lot of care to to polish their historical areas. And of course, Philadelphia has done that too. And New York has done that in certain places. Absolutely. So, and that's okay, but it doesn't characterize the city completely. We also don't see it as a kind of um, uh, ruins, a, a backward gazing ruins, a uh, a a uh, kind of melancholy and sad ruins in the way that a lot of people look at Detroit, and certainly they did about ten years ago before more investment started to come in there. But you know, we that's also a distant distancing idea that it's it's a ruins that it just sits there away from us. Our ruins are very close at hand. And so, although there are old mills and factories that are sitting all over Philadelphia in a ruined state, we show we take the reader inside the Richmond Generating Station, which was one of the largest electric power stations in America, in a ruined state. And it's evocative, and it's exciting, and it's a kind of like terra incognito for for an ex- urban explorer. But at the same time, that's not really, we're not trying to fetishize that sense of ruins. We're not particularly interested in ruin porn, which objectifies these places and forgets about their human element and their meaning. We're interested in in what they do mean for us in the in the present day city and and the way that we inhabit them now. Yeah, that's interesting. I think about like a wildly popular television show like The Walking Dead where people inhabit ruins like that uh, where their whole like urban landscape is a ruin but yeah there no one you never seldom I mean, once in a while, but very seldom do you ever hear the characters reflect on this ruin that was recent you know that the, the in in the in the the zombie apocalypse is not that long ago and so i mean that that is so you 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 do write about the ruins in 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 the way that you'd write about a family history it is it's it first of all all of us who inhabit row houses in Philadelphia, we're living in somebody else's house. You know, generations of other people live there and and they put their lives into those houses as we all do in our domestic spaces. Do you live in a room? I do. And and mine was built by a um an Italian immigrant family. Uh and they built the house that I live in uh to be their grocery store. And they lived upstairs. So we have in our house their tin ceiling in their grocery store. We have the meat hooks in the window. Um, and we have this space that, I mean, they made their house look like it was from Southern Italy. On the exterior, there's a balcony. There's lovely uh, pedimentation. Uh, and you can see what they were trying to do. They were They were interjecting their notion of an urban building from one place of the world and 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 almost pressing it into the place of a, of another one city on top of the other and and when you do that of course you're reinterpreting and you're compromising the materials that you're using so they build it out of brick of course and um but yet you get this really interesting urban conversation that starts to happen. And so we have, we really have an Italian house in Philadelphia, but it is also in a typical Philadelphia row house form with the staircase over on the side. And uh, we just happen to have a storefront on ours as well. How many of your neighbors know the story of their house? Like you just told me. Uh, Probably not too many, but, but you know, 
one of the exciting things in, uh, about what happens when you live in a ruins is that you're aware of it. And you know that you're sticking your hand and your life and your family's life into the... It's exciting. This is why people like old buildings. This is why um, the sort of material representation of the industrial age is so exciting to people. You see the iconography everywhere within you know, in restaurants that are trying to be industrial chic, you know, in, in stores all over cities in America, that iconography of the, of a past age of handicraft, handmade things, even though they may have been made actually of machines and we're romanticizing it. But that notion is very alive to us because we want to have a connection to something in our lives. Some people look for connections through religion. Some people look for connections um, through the land and the landscape, right? I mean, lots of Americans move either to the suburbs or to the West because they fall in love with the landscape and that's what they want to be near. Some people look for it in this rich urban history that they can get their hands on. And I really do think that that makes their lives more meaningful. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Crest, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Living in the United States, in, in a city that you know was formerly the capital of, 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 of the nation, it, it strikes me that is there a difference if you live in an industrialized liberal democracy in Europe? The ruins. There's a pre-modern legacy that comes up against the, the modern. I mean, you, you see this now. What's going on in Spain and Catalonia? So like, but for in the United States, we basically we don't have that long pre-modern tradition. We don't have ruins that remind us of that. I mean, we're kind of we're we're founded on these Enlightenment ideals without the pre-modern backstory. <laughs> I mean, how does that change the experience of of ruins? Well, I think you know, it, in order to talk about ruins in America, you have to sort of shift your perspective about it, right? So there, are the ruins. When we think about ruins, we think about Turkey and Greece um, and um, other places in the old Roman Empire. Um, and in the Middle East, I mean, so many of them actually were lost in Syria in the last five years. Uh, extraordinary ruins of, of past civilizations, ruins in um, 
uh, you know, in, 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 in Afghanistan that were lost in, in the war, you know, it's like, so, so there are ruins of ancient civilizations that of course we do not have, uh, in, in the U S except for the, the native civilizations, which did not put, did not privilege material things in their worldview. They privileged more the place, the location of a sacred place in relationship to other places in their world. And they privileged natural elements in relation to that sacred place. But it wasn't about the buildings per se. And, and so you have a funny thing going on actually in the American Southwest with um, um, some of the pueblos. Um, there's an interest in preserving them at some level, there's an interest in, in some places like Taos where they've been preserved in amber. There's an interest in maybe bringing some of those pueblos up to um, become more like, you know, modernize them so they can be lived in and inhabited and made contemporary and real to people. And there's an interest in sort of letting them fall away. They're built of mud and they were meant to just fall away. So there's a lot of tension in the way we think about ruins in America. In the, in the urban context, however, I think there's, there is something evocative about going into uh, something, a place like Richmond Generating Station and feeling that cold, damp air, feeling out of the world you live in, seeing the... And yet it reflects the world you live in in some ways. It's not... Standing in a coliseum, that's not the world you live in. This is, this is industrial. <laughs> it, it, it's true. It's true. And so it's a little bit... Um, in, in a certain sense, the melancholy that you feel from it is more powerful than you do in the Colosseum. You know, if you sit in, a, in what was a Colosseum in, in some rural landscape of Turkey and the wind is blowing and there's wildflowers growing out of the cracks and the stones, you're just overwhelmed by the, the sort of forgotten beauty, the, the loss, the, the, the distance. If you're standing in... Um, if you're standing on the in the third floor of Gerard College Founders Hall, a building that was meant to be built with the proportions and the materials and the style of an ancient Greek temple, and if you're in that space which is no longer used and it looks like a ruins, it's a ruins of a ruins, you think just what you said, that is, well, this is strange. Why isn't anyone using this space? Because you're in the middle of a neighborhood in North Philadelphia and you're wondering why it's sort of empty like that. So it doesn't have the same quality, I agree. And but, not- but does that make it richer for reflection? I mean, because I don't know that... It, it- it's a different kind of self-reflection, right? Because I mean, you have this, you have these great pictures of in the book of this subway station under the Brent Franklin (laughs) on the bridge. And, and you talk about how we were just talking as I arrived, because I had a septa kind of, uh, 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 you know, the the hidden buses of Philadelphia didn't show up to get me to the train station. So I was worried I was not going to make it, but you know, it's interesting. You, as as um, I was thinking about like Septa and then these pictures in the book, which are beautiful and, and arresting, and 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 you talk about in the book, Philadelphia was going to have a multi-spoke system like New York, and because of political corruption, now we have this much less efficient a subway that can't take you all the way around the city; it can just take you northwest or north, south, east, west. And that, like, it, it's interesting because that 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 it sort of evokes immediate reflection on our current circumstance. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And and so I would have to say that some ancient, you know, so if you're in Rome 
and there are ancient ruins, or in lots of you know Italian cities. In the in the in the city of Syracuse in in uh, Sicily, you're walking down the street, and uh, you know there's a, there's a ruins. The same thing in Rome; these ruins are sort of sticking out, and they appear to have been like you know wedged into the contemporary streetscape. And you and they they give you a sense of the layering. And in Philadelphia, it's more immediate because. You know, something like the Franklin Square, empty Franklin Square um, subway station under the Ben Franklin Bridge is a reminder of some of, of more recent loss, of of a more recent incompetence and incapacity to create the kind of city that we wanted to create or that people would have wanted to create. And so it is a more personal and immediate kind of gut check. That's why it's hard to celebrate ruins in that way because they they represent failure. Of course, failure is part of human life. And if we acknowledged it more often, maybe we'd be more comfortable with it. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so in a sense, maybe what the ruin, having ruins so close at hand, maybe that's just a reminder. It's a more honest way of, of living. I, in my first book, Song of the City, I, I, I said that the city is a place where death and life are um, very apparent, right? You can't avoid either. They're in your, you know, just both in the architectural and, and fabric of the city, you're seeing buildings go up and buildings go down, and there is a life cycle. But but with people so close at hand and the and the representations of people who came, be, you know, we're, sit, we're, we're in this room here built in 1840 with portraits on the wall of, of dead people. And so death is always around us. There are burial grounds everywhere and you can walk through them and you're always reminded of death. Um, and so I think there's an honesty in that. And what I, what I do think somewhat typ- typifies American life is the desire to get as far from death as possible and distance from it and, and kind of isolate it. And that's not possible in a city like Philadelphia. And that's one of the things that makes it for me, from a literary perspective, so interesting. It's that so close to the surface is this is life and death. Yeah, it's interesting because a couple of days ago we commemorated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and this it, it strikes me this is at the heart of part of Luther's protest that that you, the medieval religion of his time you were either sinner or saint. You couldn't be sinner and saint. That's like his famous Simon Eustace Epicard at the same time sinner and saint, right? And it sounds like that's what you're saying, like. At the same time, life and death, like these things, and as opposed to, well, it's one or the other, maybe we deal with failure better in general in our own lives and collectively. If we could have the simul, if we could, if we could, like you do in in the book, if you could narrate these things sympathetically together. And, And I think that cities, the more successful cities in the American context, I mean, and it's easy to think of New York and Los Angeles this way, are cities and they're distinctly different that came out of different urban impulses, right? However, they represent the sort of constant forward push of capital, always wanting more, always, um, you know, wanting to devour more and always thinking and looking ahead, never behind. And that maybe is what makes a successful city in the American context more successful in the, in the, you know, in in this, in the sense of economic growth and population growth, things like that. However, I mean, there is something so arresting and, um, almost beguiling about a place where death is so close at hand, where ghosts 
and I don't mean that in, in a kind of a shrill sort of way, uh, but the shadows of people who came before us are here, and we have to deal with them. We have to deal with them. We have to accept what they did, and, and while at the same time standing up for our own selves and demanding to create a city for us today. And so there's a conflict in that, neither sinner nor saint. You, you have to accept both. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You talk in the book about the filming of 12 Monkeys and some of the, which by the way, I had a friend, a college buddy whose car, I think hits Bruce Willis. It's a, like, like light blue Honda Civic. I rode around in that car. He it got used in the, in the filming. But, you know, it, it, and there's now also a serial drama, 12 Monkeys, which is fantastic. But Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, it's great. And they really expand on the time travel. It's a fantastic show. But, uh, I think, you know, you talk about the Divine Lorraine Hotel because a lot of the stuff is shattered on there. I mean, that is just so fascinating, right? Because it's this huge hotel, the Father Divine. I mean, one of the fascinating 20th century American religious figure, right? Who comes up with this fascinating movement. I mean, sui I mean, he's, he's a real religious, creative religious genius. Uh, and, and now I didn't realize people are still meeting. I mean, you talk about there are still contemporary meetings and there are these communion services. And it's just fascinating. Yeah, so um, one thing that we talked about in the book, is, as I said before, is the layers. One of the interesting layers, one of the, the layers that's often invisible is, is the layer of African-American life. And so when we look at a, a Gilded Age building like the Divine, Lor- Divine Lorraine Hotel, or the, originally the Lorraine Hotel, built um, in the Gilded Age, that gets pulled into the 20th century by Father Divine's peace mission movement, who comes to own it. They keep it. They believe that life on earth is paradise. And they, so they, in fact, they make their money managing a cleaning business. <laughs> so so the, the, the peace mission movement funds itself by cleaning, with a cleaning business. And so they're really used to keeping things beautiful. And um, where am I going with this? I, I guess that is to say, so you, what we end up with is interesting and surprising ways in which, say, the nouveau riche, the gilded age, uh, the um, robber baron moment in Philadelphia is brought along into the 20, in, well into the 20th century by uh, a religious figure named uh, Father Divine who believed himself God. Who believed in? Got to have a healthy ego if you're going to start a new movie. <laughs> yeah, you might as well. You got. You got. Uh, who um, who believed completely in racial integration and got into trouble in the other places where he had been, uh, notably in New York, uh, I think on Long Island, where he was sort of kicked out for having integrated dinners and parties and things like that. And also, um, uh, he believed in um, complete sexual abstinence. So. I don't know how you keep a religious movement going if you don't. If, <laughs> Birth if, rates, man. With, Birth uh, rates without reproduction. <laughs> but but so so he created this very f- interesting and almost sometimes counterintuitive civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century, and it was both invisible and very visible. And it was visible because he went around buying some of the great buildings of the Gilded Age, including the Divine, the Lorraine Hotel, which he renamed the Divine Lorraine, and including the Tracy Hotel, and including uh, an incredible uh, chateau on the Schuylkill River, and including the Diston Mansion in North Philadelphia, which they still own. And so a lot of these places they still own, and though the dwindling in numbers significantly, um, 
they still meet, they still prepare their meals and banquets and include Mother and Father Divine in their religious rituals. <coughs> you write a lot about congregations in the book and there are pictures of congregations. It's, it strikes me so interesting because, you know, if you look at the early sort of first couple centuries of, of, of the Christian church, you know, there aren't really buildings. They're pe- meeting in homes and things like that. So, so you don't have these, so when a congregation, you know, in the book of Revelation, right, the, the letters to the nine churches, none of which exist anymore. And there's no mark of their existence anymore. But congregational life today is much different than that, because even if a congregation is dying or is dead, the building is there to remind it. And sometimes you talk about a storefront synagogue, which was the first storefront synagogue. I, I had no idea, like different immigration patterns, you know, it caused a kind of blue collar Jewish congregation to develop. Right off, and you say, you know, the, I, I was fascinated because they kind of get off the pier around Washington, <laughs> that area in South Philly, and they just stay there. But those things, it's interesting, right? Because in, in, in that instance, the thing remaining has, there's some revival there now, right? I mean, people have tried to use that space again, and, 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 and for, uh, for, uh, for both congregational, religious, and sort of public use. Well, it's, it's really interesting. So the same instincts and impulses that led Philadelphia to have all these private societies sort of led it to be a, you know, a free space for religion. Freedom of religion in America was proven here in Philadelphia when William Penn allowed other Christian denominations to form and not just have it be a Quaker city. With that came Jews um, and all kinds of other Christian thinkers and sects and denominations that set up here and practiced their religion as they wanted to. And it became incredibly rich, variegated quilt of religious practice in Philadelphia. And so we ended up with probably more religious organizations and religious buildings than anywhere else. It was sort of a polyglot of religion. Um, and so we're left with that. There was a recent report uh, that there are more than 800 historic churches in, in churches and religious buildings in Philadelphia still standing, and many of them have congregations that are struggling to survive. And I'm not sure if that 800 includes the vast uh, Catholic infrastructure. So Philadelphia, following that pattern, Philadelphia, you know, through immigration, starting with the Irish and then uh, and then the Southern Italians and uh, folks from Eastern Europe grows an enormous Catholic community or, you know, really fragmented communities that come together under a single archdiocese. And that archdiocese goes on and creates the largest parallel Catholic parish structure in America of schools, hospitals, universities, and churches, seminaries, and, 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 and all of that. And so... And of course, the Catholic Church is retrenched incredibly. Uh, you know, began moving out to the suburbs, but then in in neighborhoods that that became uh, where Catholic communities moved, you had this issue because the the churches were built to be eternally in place. They were meant to be there forever, but they didn't t- they didn't factor in the notion because how could they? that American cities are always following the pattern of, of people coming in and moving out and people coming in and moving out. And so they're not stable. 
So, so we, we now, you know, we've, we're now, you know, two generations into clothe, closing of Catholic churches and, and congregations leaving. Uh, there were 150 synagogues in South Philadelphia. You know, the Jewish community has dispersed uh, throughout the region as they have everywhere. Uh, and so then you have, so, you have these remains, and the scale of the remains is enormous. So what do you do with it? In some cases, so we do uh, take the reader inside of a, a row house synagogue called uh, called Shifte Yesharon from the turn of the 20th century that some people have sort of taken ownership over and brought it into the 21st century. Although if you look at the photographs, it looks like the old world. It's another imprinting of the old world onto the new world. Just like it with my house, and um, and and you can see that in the in the photographs. And yet, a group of very dedicated, uh, community-minded people have sort of stepped to the fore and and brought that congregation into the present tense through programming and the like. And and that's what happens. That's that's the pattern. But churches are a particular issue, and and Philadelphia, like other cities, but Philadelphia more so because of the, the sheer number that we have is struggling. Uh, there is a re- recent news of a, of a church that was built in the late 19th century by Protestant Italians, although it, it has a kind of Italian, uh, Southern Italian look to it, uh, you know, almost a Romanesque um, architectural style. It's very distinctive, but the congregation is now below 20 people, and uh, they'd like to move somewhere else. They want to sell the church to a developer who will knock it down and build houses. And that's attention. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend who's a pastor of a church that meets right off Rittenhouse. It's called Liberty with an I, the Latin spike. But they were, I mean, they have two campuses, one out in Bryn Mawr, one. I mean, they're growing and growing mostly with young families and young people, but they actually bought out First Baptist. I mean, First Baptist is a tiny congregation, historic. I mean, that, and that's the, the most curious looking Baptist church, right? <laughs> but yeah, you ha- it seems like now, Congregations that are growing are, are trying to rent spaces and, and not have <laughs> be tied down. So it's but yet yeah, it is it t- human beings. We want to make our, our surroundings a home, right? And so you, it, the, this sense of permanence with building is, is always a tension. Well, the the city, in my estimation, is a collision between physical space and the metaphysical space of ideas and culture and religion and material and and always intention and and that's a great example i mean we we were supposed to be living in a dematerialized age um and in some ways maybe that's true but, and but at the same time we're we're looking because of the fast pace of change maybe or because of maybe because we are not a traditional society and you know we we don't have um as you said, we don't have, we didn't have the experience of a very long experience in this country of being a pre-modern place. The dollar replaced all of those usual things that you would grab onto to define your life. And, you know, I think people look for meaning and, and, and they look for it in the material life of, of a city like Philadelphia. Yeah. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago called All Things Shining. I think it was, um, Dreyfus and Kelly, two philosophers, but they talk about this, like, you know, in most of history, you know, Western history, you, you figure it, you were told by traditions and, and 
sacred texts and things, what was sacred. You know, Nietzsche says the sacred is what we all agree we can't laugh at, right? But so, but you inherit that, and you see the challenge of like this is why you know they talk about David um, Foster Wallace's novels and, and things like that. People like searching for meaning, and the thing is, everybody has to determine what's sacred themselves. And you're right, you feel, and you, you I mean, you narrate this well in the book. This that you talk about the metaphysical and the physical kind of, but that is, you know, it's interesting that a book like yours for some people I think will be an invitation to some sort of sacredness, to some sort of transcendence beyond, for those who seek it. I mean, maybe some people just, you know, can get by on, you know, iPhones and Instagram. <laughs> but for people that are looking for a sense of permanence, maybe it's in some reflection on the immediate past that's no longer present and yet is still with us materially. <laughs> I discovered, um, my first book was a book of reportage uh, called Song of the City in which I interviewed people all over the city and tried to get an understanding, A, of what is a, an old central city, what's the reason for it at the turn of the 21st century in a vastly suburban country. And I wanted to get a sense of what it meant to people. And what I ended up learning was how deeply people think or ponder or um, meditate on their relationship to the city and think about their block, their house, their neighborhood, the streets they walk on every day, what it is, what it was, and what it could be, if only. And that's a lot of pondering. That's a lot of meaning. You know, there's a lot of obsessive thinking. So there is a kind of deliverance in all of this, in this deep immersion. You're coming out with a book in 2018 about politics, right? About the political divisiveness in the moment. I mean, not that that's relevant today. (laughs) I mean, gosh, yeah, what could be a more relevant topic? But I mean, everything in life seems so politicized, right? Like from the second you get up, you know, to the minute you go to bed. I mean, just especially with Donald Trump, I mean, it's just exemplified that. it's interesting that we don't have many shared things, it feels like, or that everything's red or blue or, you know, the city mouse versus the country mouse. But this is, I mean, your book, it, 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 you can't, there's not really a, a super partisan way to look at these ruins. I mean, there's not a, you could look at, well, Republican administrations did a corrupt debacle, but, you know, with the subways, but that's not today's party or things like that. I mean, it's, it's I mean, is, has it been a sense of, has the movement itself been a, a, a sense of civic unifying spirit for people that have gotten involved? Well, uh, since we started publishing and we, and we put on a second festival in 2013 with 10 more sites, we do regular tours, um, terrific program of tours that we offer at hiddencityphila.org. Um, there is a... T- and, and knowing who our readers are, there is a, it's interesting because ideology gets mixed up and, and twisted, right? So first of all, um, we are interested in making sure that in the realm of urban narratives, that we're inclusive. And up until not that long ago, the urban narratives about cities was all, all about the elites and usually the Protestant elites. What was preserved as landmarks were not places of immigrant life or working class life or work. And that's a cause that we've taken on um, as an organization and it's an interest of ours. Preservation, preservation movement. Think about, okay, we like all this old stuff and you know, do we want to turn that into a political instinct uh, to save stuff uh, through preservation. Well, that's a confusing thing to, to do too, because in a sense, preservation is kind of, it, it predisposes a backward gaze. And to be progressive or liberal in this country is supposed to mean to look forward and to uh, imagine life for modern people. 
using science and analysis and um, and reason. On the other hand, uh, a great big push with uh, the interest in cities and preservation and um, even connecting with old ways, there's an environmental part of that too that recognizes that when we reuse old things, we're at the very least saving new materials. And we might be uh, really invested in doing that if we get our hands dirty with, with old buildings and old cities and reclaiming rather than using green fields and new materials that are all made of plastic and glue and stuff. So there's a funny kind of environmental side. to. So I think that the ideology gets all mixed up here. We're really interested in um, those layers that have been forgotten. We're interested in, and I've done a lot of work in my, uh, in some of the filmmaking that I've done around this city's history, um, in looking, in, in evening out the history that's told uh, from being just white and male to being much more diverse in its approach to who did what, who figured out how to get power to do what, and what their creative visions were. The story of the city is much more interesting and exciting, and colorful, and challenging when you do that. It's not so simple. So uh, that's a great city allows you to do that. A village does not. What you are you grew up just outside the city in Bucks County, and then you live most of your adult life right in Philadelphia. When did your relationship? I mean, you write. You have a love affair with this town. I mean, it's a city. You, I mean, you write as someone uh, not uncritical but sympathetic, I mean, deeply. You know, when did that happen for you? When did it go from just the place you were from uh, to the place you kind of chose to open your heart to in a different way? It's interesting. Uh, I wasn't very Philadelphia oriented. Uh, my whole family was from Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton and- makes the world takes. Yep. And in deeply invested in that city in previous generations uh, and in through my childhood. That's where my orientation was. And then to New York. Came to Philadelphia sometimes. Uh, so if you start up, they said, we're going to go to the city. That meant New York. Usually New yeah. York. Okay. And growing up in Bucks County, as you know, living in Bucks County, you get New York. I mean, in the old, in the old days of television and radio, you got both New York and Philadelphia. So it's kind of fun. In that, in that regard. I moved here to go to school. Yeah, like Princeton, New Jersey is like the place where Giants fans and Eagles fans, it's a, it's a no man. It's a, you could wear either jersey to a bar there during a game and it's be acceptable. That's right. That's right. And um, I came here to go to college in 1987, so 30 years ago. And, I, and you know, I've left and, and lived other places and worked other places and whatnot, but I've come back. Actually, I have to say that that kind of uh, seduction that happened between me and this place was almost immediate. That is, as a very young person, I found myself in alone, on foot, wandering and pushing into neighborhoods. And because Philadelphia is the kind of place... It's not so fragmented. You know, you can just sort of walk everywhere without interruption. And so that seduction happened soon. And I began to study urban studies and I got interested in in how cities change. And I had one to look at right in front of me. The late 80s in this city were the nadir in terms of quality of life. Um, It was ugly, dirty, violent, sad. But yet, to me, there was this richness and fascinating confluence of things that that just called out to me. 
And it, the city has become since then for me uh, a, a, an object as a writer, you know, something to, to uh, write about, hopefully. A subject, uh, as in a book like Finding the Hidden City. Um, a setting in fiction. Um, a, a, a leitmotif. Um, and this sort of endlessly evocative and interesting place that now I've written... Uh, three books of nonfiction about Philadelphia and two novels set here with another one hopefully on the way. Um, and, and a 14-part historical documentary called Philadelphia, The Great Experiment. Um, so my understanding of the place, or actually, you know, you, the more you know, the more you learn you don't know, right? So when I say my understanding has expanded and deepened incredibly over all of these years, it also means what I didn't know before and how much more I still have to learn. Yeah, T.S. Eliot says, right, the mark of an educated person is first they know it. They don't know. And then when they acquire new knowledge, they know roughly where it fits with what they have. That's what I think that he says that in reference to D.H. Lawrence, who is very intelligent and exhibits no marks of education. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hum- a city is a humbling thing, man. You can get it wrong all the time. You can get it wrong in all different kinds of ways. And so I do feel like I'm starting to see the city differently now, three decades later. Visually, I'm starting to see it differently. We talk about the artist Frank Taylor, who was active in the late 19th century, was an, you know one of the most important watercolorists and lithographers in, in magazines in America uh, around that time. And he was often uh, composing Philadelphia in his pictures. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to see them, the materials, the texture, the colors, the palette that he saw in, in these little compositions. Um, of course... My understanding of the way power and ethnicity and religion come together uh, keeps changing. The ghosts are keep ta- they keep talking, hmm. and uh, and they keep telling me new things. You aren't just a novelist, filmmaker, but you you're a literary critic. A.O. Scott's book, recent book on criticism, yeah. he sort of talks about that he, he sees the, there's almost like a, it's a, it's sort of public truth in some ways. Like we, that we know that like experiencing art is subjective and yet it's also, it, it, the experience is deepened when it's shared. Like in criticism is something like trying to develop a, a, an objective pole, even though you can never get out of the subjective. I mean, it strikes me that this book is, is, is a form of criticism too, like that, in that, because we all experience Philadelphia in different ways right but is it part of it trying to develop a shared sense of of where we've been who we are where we're going and what it means yeah i think writers are kind of can be like narrators right and so or maybe like more like the color guy uh, uh, broadcast you know you're you're hoping to leave the reader with a couple crumbs a couple insights an image a way of thinking about something that they hadn't thought about it before uh, that will then make them possibly hungry for more um, or, or they begin to, you begin to see something a little bit differently than you saw it before. And I, and I think that that's, there are different ways of being a writer. My way of being a writer is to um, investigate the world I live in, investigate myself and the world I live in, but it's a there's a publicness to it and 
I see the connections between me, the place, the present, the past, and I and 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 my hope is to maybe bring those connections alive, illuminate them. I mean, maybe that's really what the best thing a writer could be is to illuminate things. And so, as a critic, as a literary critic, that's what and and I focus. Um, distinctively on uh, literary fiction in translation. So things written all over the world. And I do that to illuminate them, places, voices, ways of thinking. Um, We tend to forget that there's a whole world of response that writers do, responding to their worlds. And that is, that's a rich, rich experience that I always hope to illuminate for the reader. What's the most exciting thing going on in Philadelphia on the horizon? Philadelphia's horizon for you right now? For me, yeah. What do you look at on the on the on the on the landscape of Philadelphia? And think, this is great for the city. I love it. I'm glad it's here. I'm glad this is developing. I would say the most profound change and the thing that kind of makes me check myself every once in a while is the degree to which people are genuinely, authentically embracing the place and making it their own without apology, without having to explain why. They're just doing it. And it's infectious, right? The amazing thing about Philadelphia's survival, so a city that endured an economic collapse, and a lot of places did too. New York in the 1970s lost 750,000 people. Um, That's a scale that's almost impossible to imagine. However, we endured a collapse and we did not end up in kind of situation that Detroit did or, or St. Louis. Deeply, deeply injured. The city managed to survive on its own spirit and leadership in a certain way. Leadership that's often maligned and yet managed to sort of fight its way back to relevance. And so the embrace that the city is giving itself is really interesting to me. And it's taking itself seriously. And when you start to take yourself seriously... Then you say, oh, the public spaces of the city need to be better for everyone. And so you start to think, we can't just treat them as an afterthought. We have to take them and we have to think about them seriously. And that's what's been happening over the last 10 years. Now it's sort of moving even further. Um, And that's been incredibly gratifying to watch happen. When a city starts to take itself seriously, it can also deal with its own problems and admit them without being defensive. You know, problems around racial justice incarceration, um, lack of resources in some communities. A city that's always on the defensive and not sure of itself will always default to, you know, you know, that it can't be held responsible. Hmm. When you're under attack, you, you, you know, you, you feel like you can't be held responsible. But the city has gained back its confidence and is eager to take responsibility for itself. Yesterday, the mayor announced that the city, in, a, in essence, was taking back control over the school system. And that is actually a great example of, of that. No, I think your book is both the product of that movement and will probably propel it forward. So thank you for writing it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. 
It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. Thanks to Nathaniel for coming on the podcast. And do please check out the book, Philadelphia, Finding the Hidden City. It is fantastic. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.